Hey, this is Derek Arqueta. Um, I'm a chef in Toronto and work at Rabbit 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 and the Earless Cast Me podcast. You are now listening to the next great small business podcast. Welcome to the SME Stories podcast, where it is all about small businesses in Canada. And here's your host, Ken Alfred. Hey, everybody. Thanks for downloading the show. I really appreciate it. Today, we are in the restaurant industry with a seasoned chef, Aaron Okada. Aaron is a highly trained chef and has opened more than 10 restaurants over his career and his current restaurant, Rabbit, 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 in downtown Toronto near Spadina and King Street West. Aaron and I have worked together going back 2009. We were actually in the same gym as Jenny Kong on episode four. As well, we were actually used to work together at a fitness certification company up until 2011 when I left the company. Aaron is so knowledgeable when it comes to the restaurant business, you're going to learn a lot. Just sit back and absorb. All right, guys, we have Aaron Okada here on the show. Thank you for joining us, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Ken. How are you? Living the dream. I guess that's what people say. <laughs> but anyways, let's just get right to this here. So, Aaron Okada, what is your story? Okay. Wow, that's a big loaded question. Man. I loaded story, questions all the yeah. time, my friend. I keep it open on purpose. Go ahead. Yeah. In general, a little about me. I'm a chef. I worked in a restaurant and then I've been working in a restaurant for several years. And then I also have a side business. My wife and I run a small business. We've run a couple of small businesses, especially over the past few years with pandemic hitting my industry going in and out of employment and so our business is called loja and we do we had actually started out importing products from portugal mostly ceramics and like dinnerware and plates and stuff like that all artists and handmade stuff and we were picked up artists in toronto that we'd worked with as well and around ontario and quebec and then being a chef we naturally progressed to producing a retail food products as well so that's our our side business that we do as well and we both have other full-time jobs yeah that, that's the short of it that's the short of it going off of your profile you've opened i think almost 10 plus restaurants in your span of your life and i think the <laughs> listeners are going to be curious it's a holy crap he's opened that many restaurants he what is he 20 i'm like well, he looks 20 like you can't see him <laughs> on the screen right now but he's definitely he's got a younger face that a lot of people can think of like, explain that uh, you've always been a foodie from what it sounds yes. like Aaron. yeah definitely I, I grew up with food i grew up cooking in the kitchen with my grandmother and just saying go have fun and play around and experiment and letting me do ridiculous things and I career-wise I didn't start with food I had always been cooking and that had always been my thing but uh, career-wise I actually started out in advertising as a designer and then pivoted to food after that after I just got sick of the advertising industry pivoted to food went to culinary school part-time while I was working full-time in my first industry I changed to that and then where I met you was got into fitness and nutrition and all, all that. And that was a third career, and I've always played off that and used my culinary world, brought that into the the fitness nutrition world as well. And um, and then decided as I got older, if I'm going back full time into restaurants, it's now or never. So I, I made the change right after my wife and I got married. So it was a fun challenging first year of our marriage we were going through career changes and those are big moves to make all at once but we did it and that was in my mid-30s at that point so it's okay in, in the restaurant industry that's old so it's like it's now or never so i went back into it full time and i've always been to your i guess your statement earlier about openings i've always been interested in building building companies building environments and building cultures and stuff so i i've always gravitated towards new restaurants new openings because i like to build something and see it succeed and see the progression and yeah i've been part of quite a few restaurant openings so how does the process work you're not like a restaurant flipper right because you're actually you're starting from the ground up you're developing the menu you're hiring the people you're just getting all the systems and processes set up so some of them sorry so some of them that i've been a part of have been 100% 100% from the ground up, like pre-construction, which is a whole different process. And then some of them I've been after an owner already opened or built the place, but just needed somebody to run it and lead the kitchen team and set up systems and help with hiring and all of that. So th- at that point, there was 
a minimal infra- infrastructure already in place. And I just had to build the culture and the system. But the pre-construction openings are a whole different ballgame. There's way more involved. Oh, yeah. The zoning, the permitting, and the just the red tape. Yeah, uh, that's it's, and it's Toronto, right? So it's, it's always late. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, for those who are not from Toronto, Toronto takes a long time to make a decision for something like this, When especially when it comes to construction. The yeah. LRTs or the light rapid transit or the subway stations, you just it's been open for it's been, we were supposed to get this stuff and we're supposed to, it's going to open later and later. I think basically by the time Aaron and I retired, then I think the latest extension will probably be opened. So by the time we wouldn't even get a chance to use it, it'll start. But aside from that, yeah, so Aaron, you were talking about, so you're there in two capacities. One, you're starting from the ground up or two, you're basically taking over and running and managing it and get it going. And how long do you stick with them before you'd be like, okay, training wheels are off. You guys are good to go on to my next adventure because i guess for a lot of people i think they think oh if i'm going to start let's say a restaurant they're going to be running the restaurant till the day they sell it or, or the day they retire or yeah. maybe give it out give it to their kids or so how is your approach is obviously different so how long do you usually stick yeah for? that's there's no time consideration for me like my ultimate is that I'd, I'd like to stay with places as long as possible that's the goal for me what's always been most important i not always actually when you're earlier in your career you're just building a name and you're just doing things to get get some notoriety and get some money and, and build your, pad your resume. But I think the point I've been at for the past few years, being older and being more established already and already having a, a strong resume is that the places where I choose to work and stay longer are based around culture and environment, especially in the restaurant industry. That's The restaurant culture has been a, a notoriously tough environment and it's almost been made famous on tv like glorified as ha 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 this is a shitty environment and this is fun to work and it's almost like a badge of honor like war right but it shouldn't be that way no i think when people yeah when people hear about the hell's kitchen or the master chef my kids they love master chef junior because for chef gordon Ramsay, that's when he's nice i i have not shown them an episode of actual hell's kitchen where he is like in full-blown beast mode. So. And the thing is, if you hear anybody who's met him, he's actually super nice. It's, it's TV. He like, puts on that character. Now, that being said, it's not to say that chefs are like, I know chefs uh, personally that are, you, you meet them outside the restaurant and you think he'd be their best friend for life. They're amazing people inside the kitchen. It's just, it literally is like health kitchen to work with some of them. So, so, so it's very old school. So explain to the listeners why that is. I guess when people think, because like I said, for a lot of the listeners here, whether they want to start their own restaurant or even just the fact that they want to start something, and mm-hmm. that's what we want to try to talk about all these different industries to know a little bit about it and maybe some of the, the general misconceptions that people might have of it. So I guess, so why does it seem like in restaurants there is that glorified like war between the st- getting the food out to the customers and why does the chef have to be so mean or they yell to it? Again, that's a big, that's a, like I said, a very big load of question. But the shorter version is it's that way because at one point in time, it had to be that way. Traditionally, historically, and you could even point to not just historically, but modern times, I think what a lot of the public sort of perceives cooks as is the lower end people and the people that can't really get jobs in other industries or have bad criminal pasts or whatever like not professionals it's a very different it was always perceived as it's the help it's the servants it's the people who who need a little bossing around and historically that's what it was so this motley crew of workers needed a military leader and it and Going, anybody who's worked in restaurants, like going through a busy service is like going through a war. Like, it's not like going to work in an office and you you have time to go grab a coffee and you have time to check something out on the internet or stop at someone's desk and say hello. It's a little more relaxing, right? As much as there's stresses in the office too, it's different. The pace is different. Whereas in a restaurant, the pace is, if you're scheduled for a 10-hour shift, you're working for 10 hours. There's not, they say in an office in general, if you work eight hours, you get four hours worth of work done. In a restaurant, if you're working 10 hours, you get 12 hours worth of work done. There's no stopping. And the pace is fast. And 30 seconds makes a difference. It's not, oh, I'll get to this in five minutes. No, there's no such thing as I'll get to this later, right? It's, yeah, tell that to an egg is that's now. cooking, right? Tell it to an egg. Exactly. So traditionally, leaders have been very, move now 
fast, hard. Mental health in restaurants has been a big story over the past couple of years because it is. It's everybody faces burnout and every I've been there several times and every cook has been there several times and especially with the pandemic issue over the past couple of years, we've seen a huge exodus of people out of the industry because the mental strain has been so tough. Just on a normal day, the mental strain is pretty tough. But then dealing with the pandemic stuff on top of that is everyone's screw this. I'm, I'm out. Peace. I'll well, yeah, find something I, else to do. I think the challenge too, right? Because we're going through a lot of lockdowns. And so especially <clears throat> we, we talked about this before we aired is that the restaurant industry, unfortunately, has taken a lot of brunt end of decisions that they've had to shut down. You had some places that were mainly dine-in, now to try to pivot to become more of a takeout option only. And that sets a whole new set of challenges. Because usually, to my knowledge, like usually for sitting restaurants, they might have some takeout containers, but it's not like that was their core business. It was mainly like, yeah. okay, the dining experience, upselling yeah. a nice bottle of wine or all this sort of thing. And now it's, they're just ordering whatever they're ordering. And, and even for the waste yeah. stuff, that's, that's the tip. And that exactly. And like you just alluded to, the restaurants are all about experience, right? It's about an escape for customers. You're going out and enjoying something different than your normal life. And you miss all that. I've been very, I guess, vocal about that over the past few years about how like takeout, everyone's pivoted to takeout because we had no choice, but takeout for me is killing the industry. Just like automation kills a lot of other industries and stuff. Takeout takes the personal aspect out of restaurant. It takes the, most restaurants are built with experience in mind as well, not just get your food out in five seconds. Those are fast food franchises and you miss the experience when you're doing takeout. There's zero connection to customers. And then from the business end, like you said, you cannot upsell anything and the margins on restaurants are so razor thin to begin with. You make your money off of upsells and off of, and you can't do that. You can't sell somebody a second drink or even a first drink usually when you're doing takeout. It's made a lot of challenges for us. Everyone's had to pivot and when you do that in a, in a funny way, sometimes it's also created some opportunity as well. So... One of, I started a small business before the place I'm currently working during last year's lockdown in the summer, a business partner of mine and I, we started up our own little sort of small business, just doing takeout stuff. And a lot of current small businesses have popped up over pandemic just because I think a lot of people lost their jobs and they needed to start something of their own just to survive. And it's the survivors come out when when we go through all these lockdowns, instead of just sitting and waiting, I got to do something else. And I got to start launching my own business because I can't wait for anybody to take care of me and pay my bills. So people have had to be really creative. And as much as it sucked, opportunity has come. And a lot of businesses that exist right now, small independent businesses came out because people were forced to do it. Yeah, I think it's out of necessity. And I think even with people who are in, quote unquote, I'm using the air quotes, safe work, it doesn't take much to get, I'll use the analogy, getting a tap on the shoulder, or in this case, maybe getting an email or a phone call to say, hey, can you jump on the line for a quick second? Any last minute meeting from your boss is never really a good thing, especially if it's not (laughs) planned. If someone's calling you that day to say, hey, do you have a second? Something's wrong. And, And so even with safe industries, quote unquote safe, it doesn't take much that if you're working and you get that email or that tap, you could be gone. And yeah. it's really unfortunate because it's usually outside of your control. There's really, unless you did something totally wrong, like you messed up something that is so massive that it's affecting the company. A lot of cases, yeah, it's usually a higher ups decision of why you're not there anymore. Exactly. And that's the hard, been the hard part, I think, is that everyone, and this is why a lot of people have been leaving our industry in particular, I can't speak for all industries, I'm sure it's very similar in a lot of others as well. People are quite tired, actually, of being at the mercy of somebody else and all the decisions. So you're just waiting on somebody else and your whole livelihood depends on somebody else. And it's been tough. And you're going to see a whole slew of people going through it right now as of today's yeah. decisions of uh, a fourth lockdown. It's going to happen again. Like, more and more businesses are closing. More and more people are looking for work for the fourth, fifth, sixth times. With multiple lockdowns over the past few years, a lot of us in this industry have had to look for work several times. 
because open, close, open, close, open, close, right? Yeah. And I think from what I hear too, is that for any restaurant tour, it's hard even finding the staff because yeah. of all the, the inconsistencies with the lockdowns and stuff like that. Even if you're opened up, I think I don't know how long we were open the last time. And this is right now in January, 2022, when we're Aaron and I are talking here and we just heard that going back to stage two in Ontario. So now rest indoor dining is what, is it down to 10% or is it even closed indoor dining? No, indoor, indoor dining is closed completely. So restaurants are shut down effectively, except for takeout. Takeout only. So for a lot of it, even if we were open for, let's say, the next six months or so, the people who left the, what's to get them to come back? Because of how the pandemic is playing out. So yeah, you want me to come back. I don't even know how long you guys are going to be open for anymore. So there's that fear of staff wanting to go back or even like an Aaron's perspective from like the restaurateur's point of view to find the staff. And to try to convince them that, no, well, we're good. You're, you're going to be stable here. It's hard to say now. Yeah. Prior to today's announcements and today's lockdown during this last period of opening, which was essentially from summer until now. So we barely had six months, really. That was the big sort of story and what you've been hearing in the industry. It's always hard in our industry to find help for various reasons. One, because it was notoriously long hours, low pay, but that sort of started to even out a little bit again that's one of the sort of i guess plus sides that came out of the hardship is that people have had to start paying more in terms of salary and stuff to mm-hmm. and have it forced to change the culture and have a better environment in order to attract workers that being said if you could just it's not that easy as just deciding to do it like I said restaurant the math restaurant math is so razor thin to begin with yeah you can pay more but where do you pull that money out of it has to come back on the customer in terms of charging more that being said to the original point it has notoriously been very difficult to find any staff over the past six months because of the reasons you said a lot of people left the industry a lot of people are just afraid to come back because everyone's in that exact what you said that mental state of unsurety of is this going to happen again? This could happen anytime again because it's already happened three times. And now here we go. It's happened a fourth time after everyone trying to reassure, no, we're good, we're good, we're good, we're, we're staying strong and locked down again. So this is it was already extremely difficult finding any staff. I had quite a hard time and everyone in the and worldwide, not just here in Toronto. You mm-hmm. talk to anybody at any restaurant around the world, there's several friends in different countries, and it's the same story. Everyone's having a hard time, and a lot of it is because of, oh, there are easier ways to make money. I may not like my job as well. I may not enjoy it. It may be boring, but at least I'm stable. And the mental aspect of restaurants, like I said, is tough on a normal basis, and people are usually cool with it because it's fun sometimes, but dealing with all the other mental strain of pandemic has made it pretty intolerable so for a lot of people it's it's definitely challenging so let's go back to this note so now you're running i believe it's rabbit which is actually a very interesting name that i saw there and uh yeah so i'm part of the parent company district 461 we run rabbit which which opened as a result of covid actually started off as a summer pop-up just patio only and then it took off so they're like let's just open our indoor after that but district also owns spin which has been around for 10 years 10 plus years as well as uh, second floor events which is an exclusive just event space it's all in the same building down at king spadana and i work at all the venues essentially um, yeah so you're, you're not short of being busy so it sounds like from everything that's going on you're still keeping yourself really busy like you said you have the restaurant business which is still like you said up and down but it's still busy it's not like it's uh not busy at all. And then, of course, you and your wife started the, the, the business in Portugal. Yeah. Importing. So what was it? It was like ceramics and... Yeah, we have friends there that do all the traditional, like handmade ceramics are very big there. And we would bring all their stuff, our friends from Portugal, and bring it here and, and sell it here. And then it developed into, we we're curators of like artisan products. But it was all kitchen and dining related because of yeah. my background. So it wasn't like, it wasn't general stuff. It was all stuff that related to my industry related to food so plates a lot of like dinnerware stuff and all handmade products and like i said we started out collecting artisans to work with more locally as well yeah so it seems like you can't get out of the food industry no matter how much you try even still i, I mentioned this in the intro for, that you'll probably hear when the podcast is released but when i was talking how Aaron and i used to work together it was funny because you know 
when I would take lunch with me, this is like the the CanFit days, right? So we both worked at yeah. a FA, the largest fitness certification company in Canada that certified a lot of personal trainers and fitness instructors and nutritionists. So Aaron and I worked together, and I remember him coming into the office. Yes, he does have an office when he came when, he, when we worked there, and i will be looking office. at what I have. <laughs> It'll just be like, oh, I might have a little piece of steak and a little bit of mashed potatoes and some vegetables. Aaron, what do you have? Oh, Ken, I almost have some of your stuff. It's a peppercorn roasted pheasant with a garlic and herb mashed. <laughs> the way he described it. I never brought pheasant to work. Yeah, I'm just saying. But the way he yeah. would describe it, you can't just say, oh, I have steak and potatoes. No, it has to be the way that uh, chefs would would present their dishes to like judges or you to whatever, right. or the way the waiters would describe the food to the clients. And I'm like, and, and how did you make this? Oh, I just whipped it up. I'm like, you whip that up. Wow. So I knew that he was definitely going to have to go back into the food industry. Either that unless he was going to try and change the way we, we view nutrition in Canada. But no, that it, it's been really funny from that perspective to see how, like I said, he's always been in food and that's why I wanted to have him on because we, our goal in the show is to bring all these different industries together and to talk to the pros to say, here's what it's like to help motivate people that maybe want to either start a restaurant business or even start any side business just to really get out there. Because I think we both agree that no matter how quote unquote safe, and I've used that analogy again, it's best that you have something as a side gig or at least have something coming in just in case kind of thing. Cause you never know. Yeah, I agree. Yes. Yeah. So, so back um, to some of these other questions here though, Eric. So, what has been like, so you, the growth, what do you expect to see in the restaurant business? Or maybe do you see more of it as maybe the restaurant is more of the minimal and the takeout will be the norm moving forward? Or do you think there's still a room that's, for the restaurants? That's hard to say. I think there will always be room for restaurants. And the patterns that we've seen, really with that, okay, the industry changed completely. We've had to pivot more towards the takeout. And I think that will always be there and that will always be a trend, you know, continuing to grow just because I think even prior to pandemic, that was a trend and it was really hard on restaurants just because we're in the age of modern convenience. We want things right now. We want things fast, cheap, and immediate. Everything at the click of an app, right? Just go on your phone, click it's here. It's at your house in 20 minutes. And I think that will continue to be the trend. The biggest trend is ghost kitchens and dark kitchens popping up, whereas they don't even really have actual restaurants. They're just people renting a kitchen space and running like three different virtual restaurants out of that one space. So the restaurants that don't really exist physically, just people doing takeout delivery only through delivery apps, which, which, you know, love a relationship with them. I've always, I've been super vocal against them during this whole pandemic situation. Cause when you do the math, you don't, you realize you don't actually make any money off those. A lot of times you lose money, but that's a whole bigger discussion. Yeah, um, and you're not talking about the, the the delivery people itself. It's just the companies that run it and the charge. It's the Uber. Fees. It's yeah. The, it's the, yeah, yeah the, the fees charged. It's not the actual so delivery people because they're just obviously doing their side gig as well. And right. it's more, they, they actually don't make enough money either themselves. Yes. Like they're underpaid as well. Make a very simple example of that is like on on average restaurants have a profit margin of four to ten percent and ten is considered really good which is disgustingly low mm. but let's say it on average a four to six percent profit margin and uber charges thirty percent would worth your profit like restaurants don't even have thirty percent of a margin to give up a fifty percent margin then okay sure thirty percent okay that's fine we'll still have twenty you're which still is... left over but mar no restaurant has that that large of a margin so a lot of restaurants you know, you have pivoted to this delivery platform, mm -hmm. but a lot of them, especially the, the really small businesses where people are, I guess, very well educated in the business side of it. A lot of restaurateurs and small businesses are just scraping away, fighting to survive. And they think, okay, we're busy. It keeps us busy. But busy doesn't mean successful or profitable if you're losing money off every order. And so a lot of those have died during this whole sort of locked down situation. But like I said, there have been a few positive examples of people being creative, finding other ways to survive, of restaurants starting up little marketplaces out of the front of their space because they can't run a restaurant. Let's turn it into a market, sell product. We're, we're scrappy people in this industry and you find ways to get by because you have no choice. Yeah. So creativity has been a 
one positive aspect yeah, and I think forcing you know, culture change as well has been a positive aspect. Yeah, because I see so many more food trucks or, like you said, pop-up locations that, you know, even if it's a short-term pop-up, like they're only going to mm-hmm. be there for a few weekends and that's it. But at least that's that, that gives you something coming in. So you can still yeah. do you can still do it. So like I said, that creativity piece is very important. I think that you're talking about. And that's about. what that's what I did over last summer with my business was it was essentially a pop up, right? Like we we were working out of other people's locations and where we started off just doing weekends for the whole summer and it got a lot of traction and we were doing well. And eventually we decided to close down the business for other reasons, but and restaurants opened up, go get other full time jobs. But spun well it lasted and it helped keep us going throughout the summertime. Yeah. So, so speaking of that, so we talked about some of the basic expenses that you've talked about, right? Because you said if you're starting from like ground up where it's like construction, mm-hmm. that's probably the biggest expense. For recurrent restaurant operations, is the biggest expense, is it like the takeout uh, fees or is there something else that people don't labor. know that labor? <laughs> the biggest expense. So you're, there's so many. Restaurant math is a little different than I'd say like everyday common math. And I think this is what a lot of people on the customer side don't understand restaurant math is very specific to the restaurant industry and there's a lot of things that you don't see i'd say the largest expenses that you have ongoing of course you have your rent right your lease which is usually quite big your taxes with that and then labor is aside from inventory but the whole sort of theory is the inventory pays for itself you're supposed to sell that if you're stuck with it which has been the hard part of a lot of these lockdowns is restaurants ordering all this inventory to sell and then lockdown and you're stuck with it and it's wasted. You can't sell it. But labor is definitely the biggest cost, especially with wages going up, which they should. They should have a long time ago. That's been a much bigger cost as well. So you're paying a lot of labor and that's a massive cost. In general, this is very general and every restaurant has their specific math, but in general, you estimate your food cost, which is just ingredients alone, at about anywhere from 20 to 30%, unless you're like McDonald's, which has a 12% food cost, but that's because mm-hmm. they have, they pretty much have their own industry. Anywhere from 20 to 30% is, is food cost. And then another 20 to 30% is labor cost. And then the rest of that's, you're almost up to 60% there, 50 to 60%. And then all the rest of it is your rent, your taxes, your operating expenses in terms of your hydro and your telephone and your internet and all those incidentals that you don't nobody sees just keeping the business running your electricity your or your the gas, software system water. used to track your inventory or your staffing and all that sort of like the system right. and licensing there's a lot of licensing and permits that you have to pay for too so all of those things your is what leaves your margins so tight Yes, at the end of it, you're saying like four to 10, and that's 10 is being really good. And that's not a lot of places that can say that we have a 10% margin, right? Right. You look at at inflation over the years and think people say, oh, it's all relative, but it's not because you look at the prices that we've been paying at restaurants as customers has not changed that dramatically over the past 20 years, but operating costs have changed exponentially, right? Like insane amounts. The operating costs have gone up so much more over the past 20 years, but the amount we actually pay for food as customers, it's gone up, but it's not. You can still find a meal for under $20. Yeah. And when prices go up at the grocery store, people have to pay more at the grocery store, but they don't realize. But then if a restaurant changes, marks up their price of dollars, like no way, there's no way. I'm like, you have to pay more at the grocery store. Why would we also have to pay that more? We, we have to pay more too. Just to give you an example of sort of the easiest example, over the past two years during lockdown, at the beginning of pandemic, oil, just regular vegetable or canola oil, which a lot of restaurants use just for cooking or for the deep fryers, which is a lot, it's $26 for a 16, a 16 liter jug. Now that same jug is about $53. Oh, wow. Yeah. Double so it's ease. double. And that's just one item. So operating expenses just over the past couple of years in the pandemic with less business, with less sales, yeah. operating expenses are double. So that's just to give you an idea of the challenges that are going on. Not to, not to say restaurants, not that I don't want you to make it sound like restaurants all gloom and doom. A lot of us do it because we love doing it and well, we'll always love doing it. Yeah, and I think that's where we want to make sure we round this out too. Because like I said, we don't want to make this podcast about doom and gloom. If you want doom and gloom, we just turn on the news. 
That's all if you really right. want to, if you really want to hear doom and gloom, just turn on the news. But at the same time, I think the reason why we started this podcast is to really show the good, bad, but the real stuff in any particular industry from yep. the pros like yourself, Aaron. So it's not like you're trying to scare anybody from wanting to do it. It's more like... Not, not at all. I, yeah. I want, but I want people to be, I think, realistic, especially in our industry is like the thing about over the past years with the popularity of TV is people have become more interested in it, which is amazing. But I think it, a lot of people are also very unrealistic about it because of TV. And I don't want to scare people off from the industry. I'd actually like to attract people to the industry, but I also want people to be very realistic about what it is to run a business. There's a lot more involved than just showing up, cooking a dish and leaving. It doesn't, it doesn't right. work that way, right? It's different when you cook for your family or maybe yeah, hosting like a Christmas or Thanksgiving dinner. Because if you've seen before what... Houses, households are like when they're trying to prep a turkey dinner for those who celebrate the, with the turkey disaster. dinner. It's a disaster, right? It's so a disaster. Everyone's yelling. At some, the, the parents are yelling at something. Either my wife will be yelling at me to get out of the kitchen or I'll be yelling at the kids because they left the house messy and we're having company over. And so it gets really stressful now. Multiply that times almost 360 times, days. Three, yeah, times 300 people a day. 300 people a day times 300 plus days a year. So yeah. that's the, the kind of experience. If you don't, if you don't have your processes really ironed out, that you can't adjust or pivot to what you're talking about, then it's really you're gonna you're gonna suffer a lot of undue stress of it. So it's it's very important to really try to figure out if you want to go this route. Really figure out aside from the ingredients, your pricing, your equipment that you're going to be using, the location you're going to be using, all that sort of stuff, and the staff you're going to hire. Have a good plan. Or at least run it by, if I was to say, I would tell users, I would tell listeners this, is that if you're really serious about it, we'll reach, we'll ask Aaron how to, how people can contact him. Yeah, I'm sure Eric could look at your plan and be like, yes, that'll be okay. Or you might need to tweak this, that, and the other, just to really set the expectations of what it's going to be like. Because we don't, like you said, we're not here to try to say, don't do it. But at least before you, like you said, invest those dollars into the equipment, into the food, all that sort of stuff. Have your plan evaluated by some type of person in that business. I think I would be the, one of the best people to really chat with to say, here's my plan, so that he can give you that feedback to say, oh, yes or no. So that, that's a good thing to know. And I think we're here to try to help everybody. All right. Yeah, excellent. Was... So from the social media side, now this is not a social media channel. How mm -hmm. do you use social media to help promote your businesses, both your restaurant and your side business as well? Yeah, Instagram has been huge. You know, it, it, we're in the age of social media where everybody's posting pics online their food right and marketing for restaurants has changed dramatically with social media it's on one hand you get a lot of free marketing right by this is the new word of mouth right it's word of mouth with visuals <laughs> right so people do marketing for you if, if you really know how to channel that and you really know how to I, I guess direct that energy into making it attractive for people wanting to go out and put your food and people like to post and tag you where they are so you have to make things accessible for them to be able to do that. Make it easy for them to tag you. Make it easy for them to find you and find social media is a whole other ballgame in terms of I'm not at all a super expert on it. I know how to use it. I know how to leverage it a little bit. But that's why most people have social media managers who work on this specifically. It's a whole career. And with food, visuals, people eat with their eyes first before anything else. I've known restaurants to get very popular just on social media and become popular with people who have never even tried their food just because they love following them on social media. And I say Instagram has been the biggest platform for that. People just posting pics. Yeah. For travel and food, Instagram is probably the largest right now. It is. And I'll just make one small story. When we go to, so when Mrs. K and I and the kids would go to Hong Kong, obviously prior to the pandemic, there was always, there was two of my favorite, three of my favorite restaurants ever are in Hong Kong. And I unfortunately, I, I would butcher the name. I can't even pronounce it. But one of the particular restaurants, it's like a diner kind of setup where mm -hmm. they serve like really good dim sum and really good breakfast kind of foods. But the only thing that my, I remember my father-in-law telling me is whatever you do, just don't touch the table. I said, well, I don't understand. What do you mean? It's not the cleanest place in the world. So if you <laughs> touch the table with your hands and then try to handle the food, not a good idea. Now, would that totally pass in Ontario and Canada? Probably not at all. But it was so good. And I'll say this last point. 
my favorite restaurant in Hong Kong was a place called Louis. If you can believe it, it's called Louis in Hong Kong. And my in-laws always, every time we visited, would always go there. And they would, they made the best steak I ever had, a filet mignon. And it was something that, one thing that they did, one unique thing, is that when you order, and I like salad, one of my favorite salads is the Caesar salad. They make the Caesar salad dressing in front of you in a wooden bowl. Aaron, I don't know if you remember when you came over to our house back in Stouffville, I believe I actually had to buy these balls because I wanted to impress you by making it in front of you. <laughs> this is probably going back to 2009-ish, 2010 yeah, a long time ago, before I think I just had gotten married and, and you hadn't uh, married your wife yet. But yeah. making it in front of you, I was like, I tried to copy what they did, which was not easy because I was very, I overspent on ingredients, all to get the same taste that probably they could have made it cheaper. But Aside from that, Aaron, going on that there. So let's get to the part of the show now where it's now tips from the pro. So you're the pro now, mm-hmm. and now we have some questions, just general questions of people that say, okay, I, I want to get into this industry. Let me find out. All right, Aaron, question number one. I'm going to open a restaurant or maybe a take up, or maybe just a takeout place. How many items should I offer on a menu for a first-time restaurant slash pop-up? Is more yeah, better, uh, less worse? Keep it, no, keep it small. I think the biggest mistake any uh, new restaurateur does, or any old, a lot of them, is the menus are way too big. Smaller is better. You need to find the happy medium of having a well-balanced sort of variety of dishes, but at the same time, it needs to make sense as a menu, as a whole menu, and it also needs to make sense from a business perspective. And I'd say... To do a few things really well rather than trying to do a hundred things just okay. Just be an expert at what you do and you don't need a thousand things to do that. It's actually impossible to be an expert at a thousand things. I use the analogy of the Chinese menu and I like Chinese Mm -hmm. restaurants just everyone else does every so often. But even I am amazed by how much the menu is like a freaking novel. There's almost like you said, a hundred plus things to choose from and I'm like, could they actually make all of these? I'm sure they could, but can they make them well? Like all yeah, but things? you know what? There's a way know. to do it. What they do, it's it is a bit it's it's overkill. But they'll use like five five sauces and then just reuse it and using fifty different proteins. So uh, it's really like every dish is the same, just with a different meat or a different this sauce. One, yeah, this one has broccoli. This one has snow peas, but it's the same dish. I, if you're looking at like anything. Even when I say, when people are traveling, say, don't go to any place that has a menu more than two pages, right? Like front and back done should be anywhere from, from 12 to 18 items, really at the most. And I'd say 18, 19 items. And that's if you're more like snack bar sharing items. Otherwise, keep it small. And especially if you're just starting out, keep it small, do it really well. And then you can always expand later on. But don't try and do too much too fast because you you can't be good at everything. You can't. And then just... What happens if you have that menu, you're not going to sell and you're just going to waste the money and throw it down the tube. So cash flow is the biggest thing at the beginning, especially. That's great advice. That's great advice. Oh, okay. Next question is, what should be my, so I want to do, I want to get into this restaurant industry. What should be the first, where should my first investment go in terms of not just location? Let's just talk about, so let's take Mm -hmm. construction and location out of it. What piece of equipment should I, should the first thing I really invest in? Invest in yourself first. It's you really. That's the honestly. I know it's a funny answer, but piece of equipment is your brain. Learn the business because that's the one thing a lot of people. Anybody can cook, right? Cooking is easy. I really believe anybody can do it, and anybody can be taught to do it. It's the business side that makes is I think is a difference between a professional and not, or even just like a headshot and just a cook, right? Is the business end. Learn the business, know how to create a PNL, know how to create a business plan, know how to create a, a yearly forecast and um, learn all the expenses that you need to account for and all the planning because you have to predict months in advance. Invest in that, do whatever courses you need to do and or pay whatever consultants you need to pay because that's that'll make or break your business. Know how to get through those tough months because there are always going to be tough months. Let's say take pandemic out of it, just on a normal in a normal situation. There's always months January, February in particular that are always going to be a lot more dead in restaurants, and you you got to know how to get through them. 
So there's going to be waves. Your sales go up and down and learning the business end and really becoming very knowledgeable about the business end will help you get through those. And rather than people who go into it, get, oh, I'm, I need two months worth of good sales and oh, it dropped. And then your business closes. That's why they say in restaurants, the majority of failures come, you know, within the first year. And it, it is a high failure rate. And, and it's, I think it's planning that has, that contributes to that or the no, lack of planning and lack of money. <laughs> yeah. Lack of money. I'm going to push back on one thing that you just said earlier. You said anybody mm -hmm. can cook. I unfortunately tried to cook, and uh, this is a story from like back when, when Mrs. K and I were just living in a condo where I had three pounds of ground beef, and I wanted to make chili. So I thought, mm -hmm. okay, I don't need to do a recipe. I think I know what's in chili. So mm -hmm. I put cayenne pepper, red pepper stuff, flakes, so all the spices you can think of. All right, I got all this stuff here. And I cook it, and it was three pounds. I put it in my mouth, and basically, Aaron, it was just hot meat. Just fire. Which is just no, I, no, no I do, flavor. I do. I still Absolutely believe anybody could cook. No flavor at all. So I was like, wait a minute, how come? And I wasted three pounds of good ground beef on just, because <laughs> even if you put an ice cube in your mouth, it was just hot. <laughs> you couldn't taste anything. And even like, like I said, Tim Hortons is a big thing here in Canada. And their chili could be, yeah, more or less, may not be great, it's commercial grade, whatever, but at least there's a flavor to chili. May not be the hottest, but there's something flavorful. What I created was, like I said, hot meat, no flavor. The steak is you loaded it with cayenne. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> no, no, I still, I do. I really still believe anybody could cook. I believe anybody can learn how to cook. I'm a very big believer on how we are learning cooking is wrong. We learn, I think we learn cooking very backwards and I don't know if it's just actually true. I do know. I think it's a very North American thing. I think a lot of our things are very North American, unique in North America. We do things in the, the backwards method. And learning how to cook, we do it backwards. People don't actually learn how to cook. They just learn a recipe. Mm -hmm. And that does not teach you how to cook. Because if, one, if recipes were perfect, everybody in the world would be an amazing chef just by following a recipe. How many times have you heard people say, oh, the recipe, and it's not the same. I'm like, yeah, because recipes are mostly wrong, <laughs> really. And a lot of cooks create recipes. They create a dish by flavor first, right? And then you have to figure out how do you quantify that flavor? And it's, it's not simple. Food is not exact, right? It's baking is more exact. Baking is more yeah. scientific, but food in general is very ingredients act differently every time you use it. So I think. People just need to learn a different way how to cook and actually learn how to cook rather than like, it's like if you take math, right? Like learning one little formula and understanding math are two very different things, right? So people know how to do a recipe, but they don't actually fully understand cooking. And I think if we just teach cooking differently, anybody could do it. Yeah, I, I, I really do believe anyone can do it. Yeah, I think you're right in that because it's, I think everyone is based on recipe because it is taking the guesswork out of doing it. I guess that kind of separates a cook versus a chef because the chef mm -hmm. was the one that kind of creates it. The cook and cook it, great. Like you said, following the instructions yep. is good. But I guess try to come up with it because I remember an old show. You remember back in the day when Iron Chef was like a really big popular show yeah. here here in Canada. And I loved watching it when I was a kid because it was the only place. For those who are not familiar with Iron Chef, you had these, what, three to five really good, usually Asian chefs that specialize in different cuisine, different cuisine. Ones like Japan, Japanese style, Chinese style, French, Italian, whatever. These then they'd be challenged by other chefs to try it. And there'd be this mystery ingredient of some kind. It could be sweet potatoes, or it could be broccoli, or it could be pheasant. I don't know what it is. And the funny thing about this <laughs> show, I'm just saying pheasant. This is the most time I ever use the word pheasants in one podcast, or ever, <laughs> is just this conversation alone. And what, was, what I found really funny about the show is that you'll see these competitions going on, and they would have actual instant replays of the chefs actually doing something. Oh, he's, he's boiling the pheasant. And you see them pour the hot water. Or putting the pheasant in the hot water, thinking, why does that need to be an instant replay? But, but I think, but, but the one thing that, reason why I was impressed by that, not because of the boiling of the pheasant, it's actually because of, they had to come up with, I can't remember, Aaron, do you remember if it was like two or three different dishes using that theme ingredient? No, it was more, to, it's like a full course, probably yeah, like a full five course, dishes. 
And it was yeah. like, you had to have it involved and they were just able to whip it up just like that. And I'm like, that is impressive. I think most people, if we can get to that level, not of professional chef, but being able to walk into your kitchen, because I, I never doubt that Aaron and his family are probably well-fed. So when we... Not, not all the time. Sometimes <laughs> I'm working so much, you don't get a lot of cooking done at home. Right. But I'm just saying yeah. in general that you could go into anyone's kitchen and you can probably whip up something. Maybe not, like you said, cook everything, but you can tell them, okay, I can see at least four or five dishes just based on your fridge that you can just make that would taste good and all this sort of stuff. And I think getting to that level of training, I think you're absolutely right, is learning to cook via flavor than uh, by recipe. Yeah, it's understanding, right? At a very basic level, I think people, the first thing people should really learn is knife skills. I think that's the thing that lacks the most. And that's why people have the hardest time where, oh, it takes so long. It's too, too hard to prep. It's because knife skills are very weak, right? And that's, I think that's the single most important skill that you could learn because when you're good with that, then prep is much faster and much easier. Knife skills first, and then second, you should learn the basic methods of cooking, like sautéing versus roasting versus baking versus braising. You learn those, and that's just basic cooking methods. And from there, you should be able to cook anything in those methods, right? Mm -hmm. Once you learn that, then you learn flavor pairings. Like, what makes something taste Mexican, right? This plus this, Mexican, this plus this, Italian. It's not so simple as that, but you can do that. And once you learn basic flavor pairings, then you can mix and mash whatever you want, essentially. Uh, so. <laughs> I'll, 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 try to, I'll try to ask some more questions here. We'll try to wrap through. We have a few more to go. No so, aside from that, oh, geez, lost, maybe lost my, lose my train of thought there for a second. I had some questions over there. <laughs> okay. okay. Oh, my God. Okay, we talked about is. the flavor. Learning, about... learning. Ah, yeah, yeah, so here we go. So what about, do I need to have either a food nutrition background or to be a certified chef to open, whether it's a pop-up, a regular restaurant, or a, a food cart or food truck? No, I believe experience goes a long way. Like, I've never really looked at, when I'm hiring, for example, I never really looked at what school somebody went to. It's more of like, where did you work? What experience do you have? <laughs> so it's really experience, right? It's like learning on the job is more valuable than education in culinary world. Education is great. Culinary school is great. It's good to give you a foundation, but you learn way more working that you can't learn in school. And so if you're opening something yourself, I'd say there are a lot of small businesses that open with people with no restaurant experience, but they're amazing cooks. And that's yeah. totally fine. As long as you, like I said, as long as you learn the business sense. So if you're investing in anything at the beginning, invest in the business, in the knowledge of, about the business, right? Because you could be an amazing cook, but if you don't know how to, to run the business end and like work with your food costs and like when you're cooking at home, you're not worried about the food cost percentage no, or the absolutely. labor cost or so you have to be able to quantify those things to know if you're making profit or not. That's the difference between doing it as a business and doing it just at home is at home you don't have to worry about your margins. Mm -hmm. Have you thought but, about actually offering yourself as a consultant for whether startups or anything like that? Just so no, I'm available all the time. Okay. I'm, so you can't sure. provide that feedback for yeah. wannabe restaurateurs and chefs and something like that. So definitely make sure yeah, you absolutely. have to make sure people can reach you on that. Okay. So if you had to pick one three one of the three things right now, like a lot dining restaurant, mm -hmm. a pure like a food truck or a pop up, at this present time, what would you recommend someone who wants to open up something? I know it's very I mean, broad. I think in this state that we're in right now, if you're brand new, uh, a pop-up is the easiest thing to do in terms of food truck in Toronto is very difficult. Toronto has very tight bylaws about, yeah. yeah, about like where you can operate, which makes food trucks very difficult. But, and then our seasons as well make food trucks really hard. They're fun though, yeah. but uh, a pop-up business is good because it's almost like a little tester. And if you can succeed in a pop-up, it's like a proof of concept to be able to attract Either spend your own money or attract investors to invest in you to partner to open up a full place. Preference-wise, myself, a full restaurant is always my preference just because I believe there's so much that is a bigger part of feeding people and the experience is a bigger part of it. Now, again, 
that's not taken into consideration lockdowns and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. In today's world with our lockdowns, like pop-ups are the easiest thing to do because they're temporary anyways. And how right. long, what would you recommend would be a good length to say someone would pop up? Because I think pop up can be as simple as yeah. half a day to maybe every weekend you for just do, say a month, right? Yeah, I've done I've done one offs where you do one off events and just they're fun because you do a one off event, you do like pre sold tickets, right? So everything's essentially paid for in advance, right? So you're not what you're making or not making ahead of time. They're like one off events, and they're good in the sense that there's always some kind of demand there because you're not operating every day. So people can't think, I'll just go tomorrow or I'll just go next week or I'll just go next month. You got to go when it's available. So they're fun. But if you're going to do it as like a full-time business, you should go anywhere three months to a year to really give it a chance because you're not going to make money on the first day. The thing about pop-ups is you got to invest money in equipment and food and inventory. And you need to give your business time to recuperate that initial cost interesting all right we're almost we're almost wrapping up here i can't believe we're almost at an hour and it's just yeah it's flying flying by really fast so what has been your kind of funniest i guess restaurant small business story that you can tell the listeners oh geez the fun (laughs) i can't tell the listeners the funniest thing friendly let's go i don't have to make it on the podcast no you know what the fun (laughs) things about working in restaurants is that sort of the internal day-to-day things that you run into and working with the people. Uh, like I said, you're quite often with a Motley crew. Um, you, that's one of the great things about this business is you have everybody from all walks of life and all different backgrounds and all different education levels and you know cultural backgrounds all in one little spot. And the exposure you get is amazing. And on a day-to-day basis, there's something funny that happens, right? Whether, uh, and you Sometimes it has to deal with customers too and some ridiculous requests that you get or some, man, I can't, honestly, I can't even pick out one thing, Ken. There's just, <laughs> there's always something. Okay. Has, have you ever cooked for any celebrities that have come to your restaurant? Is there anyone, anyone notable? Yeah, sure. It happens. Not, not notable naming names in particular, but it definitely happens. A lot of times we don't get to see them because they're in the kitchen, but <laughs> so you're stuck, you're stuck in the back. Okay, no, that's perfect. And so just how about for this scenario here then? So how do you balance your work life? Because, you know, you're a husband, father, plus you're a restaurateur slash entrepreneur. How do you balance all? Because I guess a lot of, like I use the same analogy, for some people who are working, let's say, a nine-to-five job, and they Mm -hmm. want to pursue a passion project, whether that be, like you said, being a restaurateur, just being a chef or pop-up, whatever. A lot of it is saying you're leaving a 40-hour job to work an 80-plus-hour job. So yeah, how do you- to be honest, it's quite often not balanced. And that yeah. is the the ongoing challenge in this business is to try to create that balance. It's always a challenge and it's quite often not there. But that's why I say anyone's going to do it, you have to do it because you love it. Mm-hmm. Not, so, so not is there because any, it's easy. <laughs> is there any tips you can give those restaurateurs to try and do something? Is there any small tip that you do with your family that's, you seem successful, even though daddy might be working many hours. Yeah, you have to have to force it really and set limits. If you're working your own business, it's it's a little hard in the one sense because you need to do whatever you need to do to make money, but also you it's your own schedule, so you have yeah. freedom that way, right? If you're working for somebody else, it's difficult in the sense where. You just have to work when you're told. But as a worker in this business, you have to set limits and just, especially now, you, we have a bit more power to do that. And because workers are harder to find, you can demand a little more balance as when you're getting a job in the restaurant business. And you just have to force it and make it happen because it's not going to happen on its own. There's always going to be something else to do. Exactly. No, you have to get in that mental state of, I will make, time yeah really forcing it too i know there's a lot of people that utilize the strategy of like phones down or electronics down during family time we don't i know for our family when we have dinner we're not really playing on the screens we're actually talking about our days and it's usually mrs k trying to drag out the days of what me and the kids do because usually our brains are fried by that point so so how was your day today what did i do today yeah I, i don't even remember and same with the kids when they have school so I think it's it's very important to, like you said, really try to find it, even if it's literally only one hour a day or maybe something special on a weekend where you're less busy, where it's like, okay, 
just go for a family walk or something, just something. Cause, yeah, that's it. And just make the most of the time that you do have. Yeah, because we're both fathers too, and our kids are growing up pretty fast. So eventually they're not going to, eventually we could work the crazy hours and they're not going to feel like they never had a parent. But they're especially, not going to want to be around us. Yeah, they're going to want to be around it. But especially when they're really young, to try to be involved in some way, shape or form. I always make sure to take my kids to all their martial arts classes and stuff. And I'm, I'm the guy that's taking them around because I'm forced to work from home because I can't go to the office at this point. But all right, let's do some rapid fire stuff just to wrap it up. Just more fun, lighthearted questions so we can do it. Now it's time for the rapid fire round. All right, Aaron, do you have anything autographed by a celebrity? I, I had an entire, I had a baseball autographed by the entire 93 Blue Jays. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. All right. Next question here. All right. I'm going to try to see if I can word this correctly. Have you ever eaten a whole, and I'm going to leave a blank, by yourself? Hmm. Pizza. Pizza? How big? Small, medium, medium, medium. I'm not a falling knee beater. I'm a quality eater. That's a quality. Okay, I like that phrase. The quality, quality over eater. quantity. If you remember Jay from when we used to work at Wynn, his cheat meals yeah. were phenomenal. And I'll try oh, to get yeah. him oh, on the show too. I lived with him. Yes, you live with him. And yeah. I remember. I, yeah. I, I should show a picture if I could find it. I'll show the. I'll be my. He was also podcast. a monster too. So. He was also a monster. Yes, and he's a trader that Aaron and I used to work with. And also, I'd like to know Aaron Jenny Kong from from Win as well. She was on the podcast yeah. earlier. I had her on the phone, nice. her on the podcast as well. But Jay had this thing where he took a picture of his food. I remember seeing it. It was like a big tub of gummy bears, uh, a few boxes of like small cereal, a bunch of junk food, and this is his cheat meal, and. I look at that, I'm thinking, holy crap, that's a lot of food. And is that, is that going to be for like the weekends? Like, no, that's just for today. That's that's right now. That's <laughs> for today. And I said, how do you eat all this stuff? And I said, I think you remember telling me that, Ken, I just don't look at it. You don't think about <laughs> it, just, you just eat it. So as Aaron is saying, Jay is a volume eater, Aaron's a quality for you. That's okay. <laughs> that's something like this. Okay, next funny food question here. All right, Aaron, in your opinion, is cereal soup... Why or why not? Hmm. No, cereal. I, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. I'm I'm one of those I'm one of those very old school key cooks in terms of something is called something because it is if if it's not that in particular item, it's not by that name. Like champagne can't be champagne and that's from France kind of thing. I'm one of I'm one of those guys. So cereal is cereal. Cereal is not cereal. soup. All right, now this is a this is a follow up to cereal. And soup start cooked, by the way. Cereal okay. is not cooked. I had some other people that just disagreed, but it was funny to hear the rationale. Some of them said, <laughs> "Oh, cereal is soup. Ah, it's just sweet cereal, sweet soup. That's all, basically, a sweet cold soup. That's what it is." So that's what some. some I mean, soup. I guess you could look at it like that. <laughs> well, whether it's healthy or not is another story. But all right, Aaron, but for cereal though, milk first, cereal first. Cereal first. That being said, I am not a cereal eater. I, I don't like eating cereal, <laughs> but I would definitely say cereal first and then milk. I did not know that was a thing where milk would go first. It always just someone no, explained that to me last week. I'm like, what no, do you that mean doesn't milk make first? sense to me. Because yeah. how do you know? How do you know how much milk you need? How do you put the cereal in? That's what I thought too. And for me, it's like milk in your coffee. Some people put milk first. I'm like, how do you know? How do you yeah. know how much milk you need? No, but I'm, I cook like the way I'm very visual, right? So I need to see it. Yeah, exactly. All right, last couple of questions here. So what is your guilty pleasure? Oh, fast food, man. A guilty pleasure. Everyone, everyone has this notion and this is of coming from a chef, guys. So fast food is not no, all listen, bad for, for everybody. But everyone yeah. has this preconception, preconception that, uh, you know, chefs eat, eat magical meals every time they eat and every time <laughs> they cook. That is not true. We... You, the hours you work are so ridiculous. The times of your schedule, you often late nights you're eating at 2 a.m. You live off of fast food, and I don't even feel guilty about it. Like sometimes it's a guilty pleasure, but oftentimes it's not even guilty anymore. What um, is it? Which fast food is your pleasure? Anyway, give me, give me McDonald's. I know, yeah, McDonald's or KFC. People will, I will cringe to hear that. Sometimes <laughs> I just want it. And then the comfort food of cooks, late night Chinese food, 
3 a.m. Chinese movie. It's the only thing open that time of night. Yeah, and you can get Toronto. We have yeah. Chinatown, and you can always have good food there at that time of the night. Yeah, if you can get past their thousand-page menu, but yeah, absolutely, you can oh, yeah. definitely go go through that. The so, Chinese food in Toronto is what sustained all cooks in this industry in the city. Yeah. All right. Last question here. All right. If you have to present, what is your go-to dish? If you had to, for a food critic, or let's mm. say someone to say, okay, you know what, Aaron, I'll give you guys a million dollars to invest in your restaurant, but I need to know what's your best dish. So you, the pressure is on. What is Aaron's go-to yeah, impressive dish? That is a very difficult thing to ask a chef because we have one way go through phases quite a bit. So it depends on when you catch me. Sometimes I'm cooking a very European menu. Sometimes I'm cooking very Asian. I wouldn't say I have one in particular. I know that's a bit of a cop-out answer, but let's say go-to in terms of my style is very European based with a lot of Asian or worldly otherworldly influences. You'll get, I, I'm very go-to Mediterranean style in my cooking. But at the same time, I cook a lot of Mexican, a lot of Asian dishes, and it's always used in there. And I think that's just a product of being multicultural myself and then growing up and working in Toronto. That's just what it is. We don't have our own cuisine. Like Spanish food has their own cuisine. Italian food has their own cuisine. Toronto it doesn't have, oh, Toronto food. Our food is food from around the world. My go-to is really having that experience and that knowledge and from different countries and being able to bring that into a cohesive dish. So a hard one, eh? So if Gordon has came to your door, you so you said, for it sounds like you might said it might be a little Mediterranean, but you said it might be something else. Yeah, right? you know what? It depends who's coming, right? Like, food <laughs> is very personal, right? And, and there is no one size fits all with food, right? There's no pleasing everybody that's the big thing you always say you can't please 100 percent of people 100 percent of the time especially yeah. when it comes to food it's so subjective and everyone has a different palate that i think you have to know your audience yeah if you can if you can impress 51 percent of your clientele you're great that's all you yep. need uh, right? yeah so that's why I, I can never say this is the dish because you know what there's no perfect dish and what may be great for one person may not be great for the next so i think it's knowing knowing your audience and uh, I'll give you my, per again, my quote-unquote perfect dish, depending on who you are. All right. So, yeah, I'll find out what you like, and then I'll present something based off that. We know, we know what Aaron's dish is going to be. It's going to be based on pheasant. So that's exactly what's <laughs> That'll be what nice for you, Ken. There you go. That's what it is. So, so the last question then, is there any hack that you can give, let's say, anyone trying to cook that would make their mm -hmm. cooking experience, you know, whether making their home food or whatever, so much easier. Yeah. We, the basics of any restaurant cooking is the first thing you learn is mise en place, right? In French, mise en place is basically everything in its place. The real key to make life, being, life easier cooking is organization. And that's restaurant life is your planning and your organization. Get all your stuff ready first. Know what you have to do. And then, like you said, typical family meals and big celebrations it's a disaster and everyone's all over the place it's because no one's prepared so the biggest thing you do is get your mise en place right get everything that you need know what your recipe is organize it all get all your ingredients out set it all that way when you start to cook everything is there and you're not running around searching for things and and it's just way easier just being organized yeah because that and that's why for like back to mrs k and i she does the grocery shopping because when she sends me to the grocery store what would take her 20 to 25 minutes takes me an hour and a half because I can't navigate the grocery store to find exactly what she's looking for. Because you don't for. know what you want yet. I don't know what I want, but I punish her every time though, Aaron, because every time she sends me out to the grocery store, I come back with junk food, whether it's chips, ice cream, some type of candy. So the kids, love it. the kids love it when daddy goes to the grocery store. So when mommy says, I have to go to the grocery store, can you send dad? Can daddy yeah, go? I gotta, I gotta say, I'm a bit of an impulse shopper too. I'm the sucker for proper product placement. If I see it, ooh, what's that looks good? I want to buy it. Awesome, man. So any final suggestions on people trying to start their own gig that you can, like from yourself being a professional at this? Yeah, you have to mix something that you love into your business because if you don't love it, it's a tough business to do. Don't do something just because you think it's going to make you money. This is the wrong industry for that. Right. Yeah, you can make money for sure. But if you don't love it, you're going to you're going to end up hitting what you do very fast and then just close up.
Yeah. Good tips. Uh, good tips there, my friends. All right, Aaron, thank you very much once again for being on the show. I think a lot of listeners probably learned a lot from you. So thanks for coming on. Actually, thanks for having me, Ken. Good, t- good seeing you again. All right, guys, that was our episode with Aaron Okada. And I think it was a real awesome episode. I think we learned a lot of things there about the restaurant industry. I think a few points that I really enjoyed was him explaining why I guess in the restaurant, it is like a battle. So the stuff we see on Hell's Kitchen or all those other things are not that far-fetched from reality. It's very, I guess it is very similar to what you might do in a restaurant. I don't know to that extent, but it's not uncommon. I think what also Aaron did a really good job is to really give you a good realistic picture of what it's going to take to run a restaurant, a pop-up food truck, whatever you want to call it. I think what he broke down the math of uh, why the margins are very thin in the restaurant industry, I thought was really good. I think a lot of people don't really know. I think like you think most people think they'll just go to Costco or Walmart, maybe just try to buy in bulk. But, uh, you know, it's still food costs a lot, especially in today's market. So hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I can't wait for you guys to hear the next one. All right. Have a good one, guys. Thank you for listening to the SME Stories podcast, which is owned by Northway Capital Group. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Northway Capital Group.